The Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 29, 4-14, and 38-10. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's wonderful to be here with you, and if you are visiting with us, we're glad you're here, and we've been sort of racing through uh, the book of Jeremiah. We did 28 chapters in about seven weeks, and then we just kind of uh, hit stop, and we've got a, had a snail's pace in chapter 29, but there's hope, because if you noticed, we read chapter 30, partly, so we are making progress. And this week I wrote enough for probably two and a half sermons, but because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to split that in half and do part two next week. So I'm going to spare you the uh, hour sermon that Scott alluded to. He thinks I preach an hour even if I preach 20. Um, He's so kind that way. So we're addressing this week and next week can liberals and conservatives go to the same church? And the answer is generally no. <laughs> if evidence is any, or well, if reality is any evidence, uh, the answer is probably not. But we're going to try and present a different vision. So let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we pray that you would help us to identify those ways that we locate ourselves in the world, the ways that we name ourselves, the ways that we label ourselves that perhaps hinder 
the work that you want to do in us and through us that prevent you from changing us at a fundamental level, whether that happens in our own individual hearts or collectively as a group. I pray that our story would be following you because you have pursued us. And I pray that we would help to, you would help us to look at the politics of our age, the polarization, the binaries that we are supposed to adopt and that we would choose differently. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. A little over 10 years ago, Thomas Friedman, New York Times, wrote a book called The World is Flat, and it was about the globalization, the connectivity of the world with the growth of the internet, and how national boundaries in particular, geographic boundaries, really were having less and less relevance. A few months later, James Fallows, who is a writer for The Atlantic, wrote an article that wasn't undermining, but just using a different terminology, and he said, the world is spiky, and that art and commerce and creativity and social capital and finance cluster not in national boundaries, but in city boundaries, and that more and more, a resident of Berlin has more in common with a resident, uh, resident of Beijing than they do with their rural countrymen. We're living in this age of unprecedented urbanization and also secularization, that those two things, at least as we're experiencing them now, tend to go hand in hand, especially in the West. And so Jeremiah's words to this captive people, be aware Think about, consider what God is doing now as he has brought you into exile, into this city, into this very hostile city, hostile to your religion. Why would he do that? And what are some parallels that we can draw for the societal uh, situation that we find ourselves in? Should we consider this unprecedented urbanization and secularization and ask, what is God up to? And how can I, how can we be a part of this new chapter of the story that he is telling? That perhaps maybe despite the impression that we get from news media, that what really matters politically happens nationally, it happens at the federal level, that cities more and more are having great, enormous influence, and that some sociologists are arguing that the time is coming where the city-state is going to reclaim its primary status above that of the nation-state, that it's the city as a political entity that really matters. And so maybe, as Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, used to say that all politics is local, So we're going to look just quickly at three things, the church's location and the church's mission and the church's story. So first of all, to talk about location, that's where this church exists. It is in one of those spiky places. And so what is God up to having you connect to this church at this moment? What does our location tell us? And Jeremiah tells these captives who have been taken out of their homeland that they knew they felt safe in. They had a religious infrastructure that sort of reinforced who they were. 
And they've now moved into this hostile territory. And quite unexpectedly, Jeremiah says, stay. Don't seek to go home. Don't long for home. But build houses, plant gardens, grow your families. What is more local than that? Babylon was this enemy city-state. And they had conquered Israel, or what was left of Israel, that is Judah. And yet... Jeremiah presumes that there's a possibility and, in fact, commands that they cultivate a life of flourishing and, hear me, religious faithfulness in a hostile territory that they hadn't been able to find and to cultivate in the friendly confines of Jerusalem. How? By seeking the peace of this enemy city seeking its flourishing at the very granular level in neighborhoods and in families, in farms and in schools, in restaurants and pubs. It's a very Portlandy mission. Now, if we were to do a poll here, most Christians here and almost everywhere have a very identifiable, very strong opinion of what should be happening in the national political realm. But most of us would be fairly uninformed about our local politicians and what is going on in our neighborhoods and the school systems and the sewer systems. That's not quite as flashy. It's not quite as exciting. We're passionate about national issues because we're told constantly in the 24-hour news cycle that it's what's important. It's what holds sway in your lives. And depending on who is winning on that particular day, we're either euphoric or we're apocalyptic. And it's no more obvious than in the last presidential election where you see Christians on both sides by their reaction giving that person way too much power. Both responses The euphoric and the apocalyptic can be manifestations of our fear because we feel we're alone, we're vulnerable, our team is losing, and life may not be safe anymore. And it makes us overly dismayed or overly elated. And it reveals that we've attached our hearts to something other than God and his promises and his faithfulness. I printed chapter 30 for you because he says at the end of this, stay, plant, grow. You're going to be here a while. There will be a time where he's going to do something different and reverse this course. And he says, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not live out of fear. Do not be dismayed, Israel, because he says, I am with you. Even as you are in exile, I have not left you, even beyond the walls of Jerusalem that you trusted, overly so, for your safety, I am with you, and there is no reason to fear. National politics, you see, is far easier to care about because it doesn't demand much of us except for our outrage. (laughs) It doesn't cause us to have to sacrifice on behalf of someone who is right in front of us. It's easier to care about. It's impersonal, it's distant, 
And it's easier to be idealistic about it and one-dimensional. If only my party could win, then things would be better. It's easier to not want a partner and not to learn from someone else that sees things differently. But issues of our city and of our neighborhood, they're far more idiosyncratic because they're personal, they're human, they're closer, and they often demand something of us rather than partisan ideology. Because we engage in the politics of the city and of the neighborhood and of the school board. We're thinking about real people. We're thinking about perhaps our children. We're thinking about our neighbor. We're thinking about how does this policy affect them going about life? And does this contribute to the common good of this cul-de-sac or this apartment complex? Now, as many of you know, I grew up in Alabama. And when you're born in Alabama, you get three things. You get a birth certificate, and you get a baptism certificate, and you get a certificate of membership in the Republican Party. They just handed those out around the hospital. I'm not lying. I sort of am. But it feels like that. It was, I was well into adulthood before I seriously considered whether a Democrat could be a Christian. And I remember voting in one local election, and I was a political science major. I ended up working for a national member of Congress who was a Republican. So I was deeply embedded in the Republican Party and in that sort of mentality and ideology. And I remember going into this local election, and I was going to vote for my very first Democrat ever. And it was a, a local election. That was for sheriff or sewer commissioner or dog catcher or something like that. And I remember thinking that I don't want anyone to know that I'm doing this. My family would be horrified. And I almost wanted to look over the little, you know, a curtain that you pull behind you to make sure no one was looking as I pulled this lever. I guess back then we had levers, I don't know. But I remember thinking in that moment that what does party affiliation have to do with getting toilet water from our house to the sewage treatment plant? Why am I getting a flyer in church about what the sewer commission commissioner thinks about abortion? Is what's important ab about this election, this particular race, is what's important whether my party wins city treasurer or city auditor or city engineer? It should be whether they're good at math, right? It should be whether they're good at their job. And so don't these labels of liberal or conservative, Christian, Muslim, become somewhat less determinative at that level? Don't we want people that are just good at their jobs to be elected? And that's what I was thinking. That was my moment where I went beyond the veil. And I thought, I'm no longer just a partisan. Maybe there's insights from other places and other perspectives. This over-concern and over-identification with party politics, especially at the na national level, can divert the church from its strategic calling because it divides the church alongside or into these polar adversarial binary relationships that are very artificial and really relate to 
keeping someone in power rather than necessarily the common good of the city. We over, when we over-define ourselves by these two-party polarities, we tend to sort ourselves into these homogenous clusters. And churches become these theologically, politically gated communities where we assume as we come into a church that everyone is going to see things the same way that we do. And when they don't, we leave and we find a different place because that's how we sort ourselves. And the political dog, the political tail wags the theological dog. We come in with our partisan eyeballs and perspectives, and that then can dictate how we think about exegetical issues and theological issues and ecclesiastical issues rather than the inverse. So churches, location, local, granular, people, human, our neighborhood, your neighborhood. But then what is our mission? At InTown, we believe that the church doesn't go and do mission. We don't have a mission committee, but the church is mission in everything it does, in why it exists, and why it is here in Portland. It is because God has called the church into the story that he is writing. And Jeremiah writes to what is left of Israel now in this Babylonian exile, and he says, stay. In fact, he says something very particular He says, move in, plant gardens, raise families, build houses to multiply and to seek the peace of the city. Now, multiply, as we said a few weeks ago, is the Hebrew term ravah, which is the very same command that God gave to Adam and Eve. Go and multiply and bring my dominion, bring my care over all the earth. And then peace is the loaded, highly religiously charged Hebrew word shalom. What Jeremiah is doing here is he is recapitulating Israel's story in a new context. And he is calling them to bring God's healing presence to bear upon a very unexpected place, a very hostile place, and that is the city-state of Babylon. They're moving, you see, out of the presumed safety of Jerusalem and into the presumed danger of Babylon. But Jeremiah says fruitfulness, flourishing, faithfulness is not only possible, but it is expected. What's not expected is not what we have assumed for so long in the United States, that our Religion, that is Christianity, if you are a Christian here this morning, has a privileged status in our country that should be reinforced, protected, and guarded by the state entity. Israel could not expect that any longer, that there would be this societal infrastructure that would reinforce their morality and their way of being, that they would have a place of privilege in Babylon. Far from it. They were slaves. They were exiles. And perhaps in the way that 
our culture is changing, that we can adopt some of that posture. That the expectation is no longer realistic in much of the United States and certainly not in Portland. And so perhaps our location gives us an advantage to see through the politicians that have these messianic claims of reclaiming, of re-Christianizing America, narratives that will likely never be reality. And certainly it won't come just through a politician making promises. So maybe, maybe taking a cue from Jeremiah instead of catastrophizing about our loss of status and our loss of privilege, we can just acknowledge it and get on with the business of being the church that cares for our city. The church's mission in town exists to lead people into a transformative experience with the love of Jesus. That's part of one of our core values. I know because I looked it up. It's on the website last night and this morning. Lead people into a transformative experience with the love of God, love of Jesus, and not just in our individual spiritual lives, but further than that, we are called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in Portland, in our locality, in the metro area, to be the agents of his healing presence in the world. We want you to connect with in-town. If you are considering, if you're new, we want you to connect with in-town, not because we're the church that most closely aligns with your theological and your political opinions, but we want you to align with us because Jesus loves this city. And you want to be a part of a community that is radically committed to bringing his healing presence as stated in the gospel, to bear upon its people and its problems. That's why you sign up here. That's why you join. And when you do, if that's the primary purpose, then you can collate some of your theological views. They can be transcended and relativized because this is the larger mission. Jeremiah calls us to consider the politics of servanthood not protecting our rights and our privilege, but actually giving them up, surrendering actively our advantage so that someone else can be advantaged. This, you see, is the partisan platform of Jesus. This is his political way, disadvantaging himself on behalf of others and on behalf of you and me. The world, you see, is spiky. People are moving to cities in unprecedented ways. And so there's innovation, creative talent, technological revolution, finance, education, arts, clustering in remarkable ways in places like Portland. And we're here in the midst of that happening. You're here if you live in this area, in this region. You have access to all of that. And you're probably one of those people but it also means that because the world is spiky and that people are coming to the city, that there's a clustering not only of 
the upwardly mobile and the innovative and the technologically advanced and the wealthy, but also the sexually exploited and the impoverished and the overworked and the hungry and the abandoned and the abused and the spiritually homeless, those that are unchurched and those that are de-churched because they've had a bad experience and they've moved to Portland to get away from that sort of religiosity. So what is our story that we live by in that context, that location, mission, and now what is the story? Very, very briefly, Israel, you see, had to learn to live by a different story, or at least the same story in a new way and in a new place. And what Jeremiah is trying to get his readers to understand is that the context is changed, but their calling has not. There's a story which Schaefer was baptized into this morning that if you're a Christian must trump all other stories. You see what I did there? It must trump all other stories. The narrative of God's intervention into this world to rescue and to redeem it and his invitation to you to actively participate in that story by giving your life away through the church. That's the church's story, and that is your story as you connect to in-town or perhaps another church. In fact, it's the story of the world. It's the reason to be a part of a particular church that transcends and relativizes political ideology. It trumps our theological opinions It is to bring God's healing presence in the world, especially to the overburdened and the poor and the exploited and the widow and the alien. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Torah. That is Israel's charter, why they exist, what they were called for. And in chapter 24, it says, do not take advantage of, of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Do not deprive the foreigner of the fatherless or the fatherless of justice. When you're harvesting in your field you over, and, you, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. You see, their calling was gigantic and enormous and spiritual and meta, but it took place and was acted out at the very granular level of farms and cities and families and gardening to care for the disadvantaged and the least. Their story of their own rescue compels them to rescue others And it's not always seen as clearly in the Bible as we'd like to see because it's also telling Israel's story of failure in that. But Jeremiah, who's working in that Deuteronomistic tradition, he tells us, he tells them the exile is the result of them drawing up the drawbridge, protecting themselves and forgetting the fatherless and the alien and the widow and the orphan 
And that's why they can no longer live in God's city, because that's not what God's city was meant to do. And we need to hear this with seriousness. Does the America that you dream about privilege people who are different from you? Does your political party and your political leanings reinforce all of the narratives that you want to believe about yourself and all of those things that you want to believe about others? Or does it challenge you? Does it call you into service? The gospel, we need to take this seriously as a challenge, but also remembering that there is hope because the gospel is the good news that God has not turned his back on the world. And he's not turned his back on us, that he offers eternal welcome, that he offers everlasting friendship. And as you, in towners, as you take hold of that salvation, which invited you in when you were an alien, when you were an orphan, when you were a stranger, when you recognize that, when that's your story, you begin to have thoughts towards orphans and strangers and people that are different for you that aren't isolating and differentiating, but are bringing you together and bringing you into service to them. You begin to speak truth to yourself and grace to others. God has constantly kept this idea in front of his church that you, we, were the stranger, the outsider, the outcast, and he brought us in. And so go and bring others in. Your experience of vulnerability and poverty and dependence should yield sympathy and graciousness to others. When you see yourself as an utter stranger brought in only by grace, by the cross of Jesus, you can begin to extend mercy to others. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you, as you have made your home with us, that you would make your home with others through us, and that you would let us move into our city with conviction and with courage and take on a daring mission. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in having eyes for the other, having eyes for the disadvantaged at a communal level, at an individual level, at a very granular level in the places that we inhabit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.